Thank you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Good morning, Sozo. How's everybody doing this morning? My name is Mark Blair. My wife and I serve as the lead pastors here. We are grateful, thankful, and excited that you all are here today. I'm excited you're here. Are you excited you're here? Good. I'm glad. Uh, It's going to be a good day. Uh, You picked a good day to come to church. Just saying. Just saying. Other days might be questionable. Today's a good day. Uh, It's a good day to be in the house. Uh, We are in the midst of a series through the Gospel of John. You can probably figure that out. Uh, One, if you watch that video. And two, if you've been here before, you know we've been here for a couple weeks. And so uh, we're making our way through. I was contacted by a friend a while back uh, who who, who lives in another city. And they said, hey, so it's really, really exciting. My pastor just said that we're going to be studying through the Gospel of John. I said, awesome. He said, yeah, he said it might take a while. We might be there for like six months. kind of felt like he was throwing me under the bus a little bit, because, um, yeah, uh, but we are. We're in, the, we're in a series of the Gospel of John. Uh, we've made our way to uh, what some scholars, what some theologians, what some even uh, literary historians have, have claimed is really the pinnacle of the Gospel of John. Some even go so far, I would be one of them, to believe that this may be the very crescendo of all of the narrative portion of the scriptures. John 17 is a prayer that we get to, to eavesdrop in on, and this is so amazing because this prayer is actually a prayer prayed within the Godhead. It is, the, it is the son praying to the father, and we get to listen into it. And uh, we've been making our way through this, and, and I warned you when we got in here, you were, we're going to be reading through this passage a lot because there's so much here to mine out for us. And so we've sort of noticed as we've looked at this text that Jesus makes seven I have declarations, seven I have statements in, the, in, the, in this, this chapter, in John 17. We, if you've kind of been around the church for a while, you might know that John makes seven I am declarations through the entire gospel of John, where he talks about being, I am the shepherd, I am the door, I am the way, the truth, and life, such things. But, but here in John 17, he makes these seven I have statements as he gives sort of an update to Abba about all that he's accomplished. He says, I've accomplished the work you gave me. I've manifested your name. I've given the, word, given the words you gave me. I have guarded them. I have given them your word. I have sent them into the world. And the one we're going to be looking at today, he says, I have given them the glory you gave me. And we are going to try our best to unpack the scandalous reality of that statement this morning. So if, you, if you've got your Bibles or if you have a, a phone that has a Bible app downloaded on it, uh, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 17, verse 6. If you don't have one, you're fine. We will throw it up on the Sky Bible. But I do want to do something else. I also want to read to us just a few passages, a few little, a few little note scriptures that I, I don't want to preach out of, but I want in your thinking so that as I'm preaching, you go, oh, that ties to that. So let's go ahead and stand to our feet for the reading of God's word. And let's, let's turn our attention to God's word as we read Genesis chapter one, verse 26. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on 
the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God. This is after we, our first parents reject God and rebel against him. God's response we see here in Genesis 3, 8 through 9. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Haggai 2, 9 says, in the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's go into that new thing. Romans chapter 8, verse 14 It says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 8.29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son, in order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Last, certainly not least, before we get to John, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says that his divine power has granted to us all things. Everybody say all things. All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. How many people love the Bible? Love the Bible. Now we get to John chapter 17, starting in verse 6. We're going to read 6 till the end of the chapter, and you're going to love it. It's going to be good. You're going to respond. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be worth driving. Come on, come on. Aslan is on the move. Winter is over. We rejoice in the Lord. John chapter 17, verse 6. I have manifested, Jesus praying to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am praying for them. Come on. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and, I, and not one of them have, has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who you who will believe in me through their word. Turn to your neighbor and say, he's talking about you. <laughs> that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, that they also may be in us. Don't miss that. That, that they may all be one. Everybody say one. one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. Me, before the foundations of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Can we thank God for his word this morning? Come on, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your voice speaking to us for your word declared to us, for your goodness manifested, demonstrated to your people. Lord, we come gathered together as one people, openly confessing our desperation to meet with you today. Lord, it seems odd to say that we need you when we have you, and yet, God, we declare our need for you. Not from a place of lacking you, but from an awareness of having you. We now profess the need we now so viscerally know. And so we ask God for your word to be clear, your voice to be loud, your whisper to be discerned in the midst of your word. Give us ears to hear, hearts to receive. And yes, Father, we ask for feet to walk in obedience to what it is you've called us. We believe that with your word comes the faith to walk in obedience. So we ask for the word that brings life within us, God. That we might know you more deeply, more fully, more truly, more completely, and you might be glorified in the midst of your people. And the world might know just how ridiculously, scandalously, marvelously good you are, Abba. We come before you and ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. All right, go ahead and greet somebody around you real fast and grab a seat. Amen, amen, amen. <clears throat> Good to be together today. 
Uh, I want to I go ahead and jump in this morning. Uh, we have a lot to cover, <clears throat> and really this is, this is something that I, I just want to warn us. We're going to sort of dive into the beginnings of today, but we will probably be here until uh, really through the rest of the school year till my wife and I abandon you all for the summer and leave on our sabbatical. Um, but if you're taking notes this morning, uh, I'd like to talk to you under the title, under the heading, under the understanding, a place at the table. Everybody say a place at the table. I want to talk to us about how beloved changes everything. And I mean that in the totality of the word everything. Um, real fast, just by way of review, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on a review because you can go onto the internet and review yourself. Uh, but just to make sure that we're all kind of together in this, uh, we, we ended last week uh, kind of understanding that if we contain within ourselves erroneous ideas about who we are, that that will cause us to withhold ourselves from the Lord. Again, I know that it's uncomfortable in church where we're, we're so programmed and it is so uh, vital that we keep Jesus the main thing, right? right? We, we say around here a lot, it's all about Jesus. But how many of you understand that maturity means being able to have not only the main thing, but secondary things as well? Right? Like, like, like the main thing is you need to pay your rent. Right? Or else, or else you will get lovingly removed from your home by a sheriff deputy who cares for your soul. Right? But you also, come on, if you want to stay in your house, you need to pay your rent, you need to pay your mortgage, you need to pay, you need to pay that. You need to, you need to either purchase it, pay it, pay it off, make the payments, make the rent, whatever it might be, that's what you need to do. But if you want to be in your house and be warm, you also need to pay Mr. Avista. Right? So maturity is being able to balance multiple things. So yes, we're not denying that Jesus is the main thing. Who is the main, who is the main thing? What is the main thing? Jesus. But in this text, Jesus talks about you. So if I'm going to teach you the text, I have to be able to teach you about you. And so as we looked at this, we've realized that if we, if we have erroneous uh, perceptions of who we are, that will cause us to withhold ourselves from the Lord. And so we, we, really, we really sort of came to the conclusion of a few things. That you are righteous. Everybody say righteous. That you are fully accepted. Everybody say fully accepted. That you are favored. Everybody say favored. And that you are loved. Everybody say loved. And it's important for us to get a hold of these things. It's important for us to know these things. I, I, I almost want to just take another week and make sure we get that. Because as we look at these things, we need to understand that, that the degree to which you are unsettled in your condition, in your position, and your identification. And that's what those are. Your position is righteous. Your condition is that you are fully accepted and you are favored and you are loved. That is your identity. That is who you are. Uh, to the degree to which you are unsettled in your condition, position, and identification, you will be unsure in your function. Where there is an unsettledness in these things, you will resist the function that the scriptures give you. And so we said, you must be personally pierced by his personal, passionate love for you. It's not enough for you to just believe that God loves everybody. That's a good thing to believe because it's true. I know this is a super hot take in today's world, but I think it's good to believe the truth. 
right? It's good to believe the truth. It's, it's good to believe, but, but it's not just enough. It's not going to do anything to your interior world for you to simply agree with the truth that God loves everybody. What you need to be, what I need to be, what we all need to be and continually be being is pierced by his personal, come on, his passionate love for you. So as I've been looking at this, I've been trying to figure something out. I've been trying to find a way to introduce this doctrine to us that will be digestible to us. I love to cook. Anybody else like to cook? I love to cook. I love to cook for lots of people. I enjoy cooking for large groups of people. And, and part of what I love about that is what you find when you, when you cook for large groups of people is that, that you, you, you need to find, come on, affordable things to cook for them. Which, if, if, you are, if you are in my house, it means that we need to find some kind of inexpensive uh, flesh of a dead animal. <laughs> right? Like, like we, we, need, we, need, we, are, we are meat eaters. I believe that God loves us, so he made animals out of meat. <laughs> okay? And, and, and what you find is, is that cheap cuts of meat, come on, tend, tend to require a marathon out of your jaw. And so the beauty of cooking is learning how to take a tough, hard marathon meat, right? And cook it in such a way to make it delicious, right? Like you give, if you take a brisket and you slice that thing into steaks and throw it on your grill, you are in for, come on, a marathon of chewing. It's tough. It's hard. It's hard to chew. But if you give it to somebody who has like a good smoker, come on. Jesus is king, and you, you smoke that thing. You give it some nice time under some low temperatures. All that connective tissue starts to break down. It becomes tender and juicy and awesome, and why am I talking to you about food? I've been struggling to try to figure out a way to take something that may be hard for us to sort of grab a hold of and to really unpack and make it, make it, make it palatable, make it understandable to us. So as I've done this, I was reminded by the goodness of God, how many people know God is good? That he gave us a tool to be able to do these things. He gave us his word, and within his word is, is a portion of his word that a lot of Christians just avoid. It's called the Old Testament. Everybody say Old Testament. If you've hung around me for very long, you know I like to call the Old Testament a book of shadows. Now, people have gotten mad at me, and I've gotten emails from some people about call, because I call the Old Testament a book of shadows, because they think I'm being negative about it. No, what I'm trying to do as a pastor is teach you what it's there for. And by the way, the, the New Testament calls the Old Testament a book of shadows. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 8, Colossians 2 refer to it as a shadow book, as a book of shadows. But we also need to understand that it's a book of shadows for our benefit. It's for your good Romans 15, 4 and 1 Corinthians 10, 11 tell us that everything that's written in this front part of your Bible was written for your admonition, for your benefit, for your good. We just have to understand what it is. When I say it's a book of shadows, what I mean is if you see the shadow of a person, have you seen that person? But yet you have a sense of who that person could be. The Old Testament lacks, it lacks the clarity, can I say it this way, the resolution of the new. I'm so grateful that when the disciples asked Jesus to show them the Father, he didn't say, well, if you've read Job, you've seen the Father. <laughs> I'm super grateful that he didn't say, well, if you've studied Leviticus, then you, you've seen the Father. 
Because everybody's, come on, everybody's good intentions, the real disciplined people that are going to read through their whole Bible every year, they make it to about Leviticus and then they give up. Some of us make it to Genesis 4 and we give up. The real disciplined among us get to Leviticus and they're like, yeah, I'm out. I tap out. See, what we need to understand is that the, 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 the book of shadows was not written. The Old Testament was not written that way because it has a deficiency. It was written that way by design. Everybody say design. It was written that way by design because you need to understand that the Old Testament is a book written as, hear this word, meditative literature. It's meant to make you lean in. The, the lack of resolution is meant to make you lean into it and go, what's, what's, what's going on here? And dig. Now, when I say meditation, many of us think of modern meditation that we talk about in America, which comes to us from a different culture than the scriptures were written. That kind of meditation says you need to empty yourself of everything and try to not think of anything. Gentlemen, that's easier for us than it is for our wives. Going to get an amen. We have a nothing box. We can go there whenever we want. Okay, but, but the, the idea of, of meditation now has become this thing where we empty our minds and try to think about nothing. What the scriptures mean, what, the, what, the, what, what Hebrews mean when they say to meditate, literally the word means to mumble, to talk to yourself. The idea is you read something and it makes you go, okay, what? This is what I mean when I say I call us to wrestle with the word. It's not meant to think of nothing. It's meant to give our full attention and thinking to that thing. Let me give you an example to help, help us understand what I mean by meditation. So as we, as we meditate, as we chew, as we, as we wrestle with the word, all of a sudden all this stuff comes out. All of a sudden we see all these things. Perfect example. This is just one of, of examples. Has anybody ever wondered why there is all the begats in the Bible? Do anybody know what I'm talking about? All of the genealogies. You're like, you had me until you started talking about everybody having a bunch of babies and then you just lose me. I just don't get it. Come on, I know no, nobody raised your hand. Nobody raised your hand. But how many of y'all, nobody raised your hand. But how many, nobody, raise your hand. How many of y'all just skip the genealogies when you're like, Bleh. do you know why those are there? One reason, there's a lot of reasons. I'm gonna give you one reason why those are there. If you go all the way back to the beginning and you go to Genesis chapter three, we see our first parents rebelling against God and we see Abba come down. We see Yahweh come down and he meets with our first parents and he makes them a promise. Specifically, he makes the promise to Eve. And he says, hey, in your genealogy, one of your offspring is going to crush the head of that serpent. Even though that serpent's going to pierce his heel, he's going to crush the head of that serpent. So now, as you read through, it's almost like it's a search history. And you're looking through the genealogy. Where is he? Where's the one that's going to come that's going to crush the head of the serpent? It's, it's meant to make you, are you hearing me? Lean into the text, not draw away from it. We go, like, oh, there's another begat. And you start wondering, did these people hate their children? Why did they name them these things? We're going to learn today why they named them some of these things. So my, 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 what's beautiful, though, is as you have the lens of the new, you can go back to the old and bring a clarity to the old. We don't, listen, this is why it's so important. We don't go to the old for clarity to clarify the new. We go to the new to clarify the old. Are you tracking with me this morning? Okay. So, so I want to I go, go into this, this shadow book and look at one of these stories. It's one of my favorite stories. I love to teach from it. I've only taught from it a few times. It's one of those, it's one of those stories that I love so much, I don't want to ruin it by going there too often, but I probably should go to it more often. We're going to go to 2 Samuel, which is really easy to find because it's right after 1 Samuel. Uh, it's on page 254 in my Bible, if that helps anybody out. Uh, a bunch of you are making fun of me because you're like, it's on my phone. I just push the button. You're a nerd. Um, 
We're, we're going we're gonna to read through. So 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to read through this together. We're gonna, you just might want to leave your Bible open. We're just going to kind of walk our way through slowly. We're going to dig in and explore some of the treasures that I think are hidden in this as we use the New Testament lens to pierce into it and find what God has for us. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David, pause, we got to stop. We already have to stop because who's David and where are we? And what's going, who am I and why am I here? What's going on with this text? So David is now the king of Israel, but he wasn't born the king of Israel. He was anointed the king of Israel. Before David, there was a guy named Saul. Saul was anointed the king of Israel. And, and Saul was a man who, who ultimately was forced to have to, to, to give up his right to the throne because he disobeys God, because he rejects God, because he tries to be something, because, because literally the text, actually, I wish I had time to teach you on this, but I don't. The text actually says, Saul thought too little of himself, which caused him to live without care and which caused him to lose his position as king. And so David is anointed king at somewhere, people argue, between 13, 12, 13, maybe 15 years old. He's anointed king. Saul's still alive. But David's just happy to continue in his life as God has put it before him. He's a little shepherd guy. He plays, plays harp in a field. He's kind of an emo kid, if you want to. Uh, hangs out with sheep all the time and just plays his little harp. His family doesn't even like him. They just leave him out in the field. And, uh, and God finds him in the field, and God anoints him as king over Israel. At about somewhere, scholars think somewhere between 17 and 20-something, uh, David slays Goliath. You might have heard the name David, the, the phrase David and Goliath comes from the scriptures, right? David slays Goliath, wins this battle, and God begins to raise up David in prominence in the nation. But David is, is loyal to Saul. He, he, he becomes the leader of Saul's army. He gives his life to serve Saul. And Saul, because of the corruption that has plagued Saul's heart, Saul sees David as a threat. And so Saul rejects David. Saul tries to fight David. Saul actually tries to kill David. Saul tries to kill David so much that he hucks a spear at him that sticks him to a solid stone wall. Saul doesn't like David. Saul's a son named Jonathan. Jonathan likes David. We're going to pick up the story. 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. And David, everybody say David. David. Now that you know who David is. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Pause. So we're, we're, we're now in the part of the story. Saul has died. Jonathan has died. They died in battle. Saul rejects David. David has to flee for his life. While David's away, Saul and Jonathan go to war and they die. David's off in hiding. Saul and Jonathan die through the course of several amazing God events that I don't have time to teach you. David is made king over all of Israel. David brings peace and stability to the nation of Israel. That's a good thing, amen? So now we can, we can see, we can, we can picture David. He's, he's finally brought all this peace and he finally is able to sit on his throne. He's finally able to rule. And we hear him make this statement, who can he show Kindness. Everybody say kindness. kindness. Kindness is the Hebrew word chesed. It's helpful if you have a little bit of a cold. Chesed. Chesed literally, it doesn't just mean kindness. It, it literally means covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. Now, what we need to understand here is that David had made a covenant with Jonathan. David and Jonathan were in covenant with one another. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 3. It says then David made a or then Jonathan rather, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. 
We see them add or modify this covenant later in, in 1 Samuel 20, verse 14 through 16. This is as David's fleeing for his life, leaving the house of Saul. And, and this, this may be the last time David and Jonathan ever see each other. So Jonathan says, if I'm still alive, when, when God's done all that he's promised to do for you, if I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, and Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. So David here is in covenant relationship. Now, what, what you, can, you can go through this story and unpack and see more in detail. I don't have time to, to, to be there too much, but we can see in detail the, all of the, the different things they do. They, they exchange garments. They exchange weapons. Again, literally Jonathan's saying, hey, you get to be the next king, and I'll get to be your, your, the leader of your army. I'll get to be your armor. I'll walk beside you. I'll be with you. There are some scholars, I have to just mention this because I have to, there are some scholars that have tried to pervert the relationship between David and Jonathan. There's absolutely nothing in the text that would, would at all indicate this. These were two brothers. This was literally the definition of a brother from another mother, right? Like, this is just, they, they are family even though they're not family. And Jonathan recognizes this, and they make a covenant. Now, it's not in the text, but culturally we know that typically what would be done, and, 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 and if anybody grew up in the 80s, we, we did this too. Come on. They would have made a, because covenants required blood. Now, this kind of one-to-one -one covenant, often they would cut themselves and, and mingle their blood. Don't recommend that now. Right? Right? Anybody in the 80s, poke your finger, you got to become blood brothers with people, and you just hope that they ain't nasty, right? And... They would, they would do that, but, but beyond that, they would usually cut themselves somewhere on their arm or even their hand, and they would mix dirt or ashes or, or little rocks. They would try to get it to become infected so it would scar real big. This was done for two primary reasons. First off, it's, it, well, really it was done the same reason why, why those of us who are, or are married wear wedding rings. It's a reminder to ourselves and it's a reminder to everybody around us. Now, in, their, in, this case, in, this, in this case, right, the scar in the hand, so that when they greeted someone, when they, when they, when they welcomed somebody, people would see, oh, that, that dude's got a scar. He's in covenant with somebody. If I mess with him, I don't know who else I have to mess with. Kind of like why my wife wears a wedding ring. <laughs> I love you. So, but it was also a reminder to him. So I, I don't know. I, I'm reading the text. Just give me a little bit. Just, just, just walk with me here for a second. I wonder if David, he, he finally brings peace to the nation. He finally brings stability to his people. He finally fulfills that call. His enemies are all defeated. And he finally just collapses into his, onto his throne. And then he looks down. And he sees a scar. And he goes, Jonathan. And at first I imagine his heart was broken. But then he thinks, wait. It's been years since I've seen Is there anybody left of the house? This covenant isn't just with me and Jonathan. This is our houses together forever. And so his, 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 his heart, his, listen, listen, listen. Yes, his legal obligation. Covenant, legal. Not denying that. But what is the motivation for the covenant? Love. So his love for Jonathan now motivates him, and he goes, i got to find somebody. Is there anybody left of the household of Saul, the household of Jonathan, that I can fulfill my covenant obligation to? Let's pick it up in verse 2. We've made it through one verse. We're going to read the whole chapter. Jesus is king. 
Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. Everybody say Ziba. And they, <laughs> and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. We'll get back to that in a second. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, but he's crippled in his feet. Then the king said to him, where is he? Does that sound familiar? Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Mechar, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mechar, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Ziba, Ziba, dude, Ziba, I love Ziba. Ziba is hilarious to me. This is awesome. Because here's the deal with Ziba. So you gotta understand, culturally, it was, I need you to, I need, please, come on, I need you to stop thinking like a American who lives in 2020, whatever it is, right? Like, stop it. Understand at the time, the right thing for a new king to do is to obliterate everybody who might be able to have claim to his throne. Yes, you could say that's motivated by selfishness. I'm certain, I'm sure it was, but it also brought stability to the nation. You track, that was good for the, it was good for the nation, because if he brought stability to it, then there's not all this uproar all the time and people aren't trying to... It, it's the same thing that happens today when, it, when a new CEO of a company, a new president of a country comes in. They, 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 now they don't murder them all. They just politely lay everybody off, right? And they get to build their own team. They get to build their own staff. That's good for the company. You tracking with me? It's the right thing for David to do. So Ziba comes in. And he's like been identified this whole time as like servant of Saul, servant of Saul, servant of Saul. And he comes in and David's like, hey, are you Ziba? And he's like, yeah, but I'm, I'm dude, I'm, I didn't even like that guy. I like, I didn't vote for him. I just like, I was just here and he just made me do stuff. I didn't even like him at all. Like, I'm with you. I like always was like, I was like team David the whole time. Like, don't let me in with like, please just whatever you do, just don't kill me and let me keep my thumbs. Right? Like, just like, I don't, we're good. Are we good? Because we're good. I don't, I don't really, and David brings up, hey, I'm, I'm looking for the offspring of Saul, of Jonathan. Do you know anybody? And I got to wonder. I got to wonder. I'm sorry. This is me bringing my lens to the text. I'm sure it wasn't there. But I got to wonder, just me, I got to wonder if Ziba thought there was some sarcasm in David's voice. I want to show some kindness to the house of Saul. Right hand and the left hand of fellowship, right? Like I just, I'm just, just looking for somebody to bless. You know what I mean? Like Saul was so good to me. You know where his kids are? And I love Ziva's response. He's like, yeah, there's like one, but dude, he's like a cripple. Like, dude, you don't want to mess with him. You know how bad that's going to look? Let's look at Ziba. Let's look at, let's look at Ziba. Ziba's name literally means status or station. What we're going to find throughout the story is that's meaningful. I told you, we're going to learn why people are named what they're named. It's meaningful because in the story, Ziba literally does it. He exposes people's status. He exposes people's station. He shows us where people are. He shows us first these couple of guys, this guy, this, this house where this, this young man is living. Mechar literally means sold. Everybody say sold. 
And Amiel means my kinsman is God. But when you put these together, the house literally means that I'm sold out of God's family. Whoever this young man is, we haven't met him yet. Whoever this young man is, we haven't met him yet. He's, he's living in a house that no longer believes they have God as their kinsman. Now you need to understand, in, 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 in this day, your kinsman wasn't just like your family. This was the person who was able, legally, capable, possible of redeeming you out of bad situations. They're literally saying like, we, 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 we don't have anybody who can help us in the situation we're in. And where do you live if you live in such a place? You live in a, in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar literally comes from two words. It means no or, or literally without and the word pasture. It's literally describing a desert, a dry place. Pasture, this word pasture comes from the word for a running water, a running brook. But it means, in Hebrew, it, 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 its underlying meaning literally means the way that a babbling brook sounds like a bunch of people talking. It means a place with no speech, declaration, or promise. So we can say that Lodabar is the place of no communication, a place without promise, a place that is hopeless, which makes sense. If you believe that you have been abandoned by God, where do you end up? In hopelessness, in a place without promise, in a place without any, any dreams of a future, in a place without believing that anything good can come from your life. And this is exactly where we find this young man. Verse 6. And Mephibosheth, everybody say Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage to David. David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, behold, I am your servant. Mephibosheth, pray for your pastor, I have to say Mephibosheth 30 times today. So Meph is a good kid. Um... Mephibosheth's name, he also has a compound name. It means, it comes from a few different words. The first word means to be cut or broken or shattered. The next word means to be disconnected or disappointed or shame. Literally, Mephibosheth's name means broken and ashamed. Which makes sense because that's literally where Mephibosheth finds himself. Now, we, we've heard that Mephibosheth is lame. I, I have to share this story no one will find it funny, but I find it funny. I preached this text to a youth camp once of a bunch of inner city kids, and I, I, was, I, I told the story rather than reading the whole story to keep their attention, and I just read a few verses out of the story, and I said, what we find out in the Bible is that Mephibosheth was lame, and all the kids go, oh, and I was like, what, is that a big deal? And like, kid goes, did he not have the right shoes? And I was like, different kind of lame. Okay, cripple, not lame. Uh, I'm lame. He was crippled, right? So, so, so that's, that's literally what it is. But, but why was he crippled? Why was he lame? Why was he limited in this way? We find this in 2 Samuel 4, 4, where we find this is right after Jonathan and Saul are killed in battle. The news comes back to the palace. It comes back to the household. And this is what we read. It says, Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is crippled not because of something he did. 
He's, he is handicapped. He is, he is, you gotta understand the culture of this day. He couldn't use either one of his legs. We are not given specifics as to what happened. His hips could have been crushed. His legs could have been, we don't know if it stunted the growth. We don't know any of these details. What we know is he could not walk at all. He was incapable of, of helping himself or helping anybody else. Not because of anything that he chose himself, but because of things done to him by someone else's carelessness. Can I get an amen from anybody who knows what I'm talking about? And here's where we find Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant, verse 7. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the lands of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage to him and, and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant. And said to him, all that belonged, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. And Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. If you have 15 sons, you probably need 20 servants just to clean the house. Come on. <laughs> then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth, I love this. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate, he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame, both of his feet. So Mephibosheth comes into David's presence, but what you need to understand is Mephibosheth is ignorant of the covenant he's under. Again, we're not given details because it's meant to make us push in. Are you tracking with that? We don't know what Mephibosheth was told his whole life. We don't know what ideas he had. We don't know what motivations were in him. He probably spent his life filled with a mixture of fear, anger, and shame. Afraid of David because, again, it was the right thing for David to do to just find all these people and obliterate them. If you want to bring peace to your kingdom, you can't have a bunch of people fighting over your job. So he was afraid. He was probably angry. We don't know if, 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 if these people he was hanging around with were going, you know what, man, Mephibosheth, you would, you would, you would be able to walk right now. You, would, you should be king right now. David went, and stirred, David went and stirred up all these enemies with his great warrior, and then he abandoned Saul, just runs away. Because you really think Saul like announced, like, hey, David left because I hooked spears at him. 
No, probably the, well, the, the, mass, the mass amount of people probably believe David just up and left because he just didn't want to be with Saul anymore. Mephibosheth didn't know his dad. He was five years old, probably has very few memories of him. People around him probably were, were either trying to hide him out of fear that he was going to be killed or were trying to keep him secret so they could run some sort of coup. For all we know, Mephibosheth's trying to gather an army. He's grabbing, I can see him, leaning against his, his little crutch and just holding a dagger going, if I ever get near David. I'll show him where, who, I'll show, I'm the one who's supposed to be king. I'm supposed to be there. I'm supposed to be doing that. He stole everything I ever had. And on top of all this, he's lame, which in the culture meant he literally was of no value to anyone. So all the while he wants to be king, but he knows there's nothing in him that could fulfill that role. He might have, come on, he might, come on, just like some of us do, right? He might have all kinds of daydream fantasies about what he would say to that dude. You know what I would do? I would, what would you do, Mephibosheth? Dangle your useless feet at him? He can't do anything. So now he's got this weird imposter syndrome going on in his head where, where he's told by the people around him, you deserve to be king, but he looks down at himself and goes, how? And then... Hey, uh, we're here from King David's house. We'd like to take Mephibosheth to see him. He wants to show him something. <laughs> so Mephibosheth has a choice. Am I going to try to fight this dude? It's not going to go well. Am I going to run away from this guy? Am I going to let fear cripple me even more than I'm already crippled? But what he doesn't realize is not only does he have all that cultural baggage, right? The good and the bad news for, for, for Mephibosheth is he's also under a covenant to which he is ignorant. Because understand this, culturally, David should have killed him. It's the right, it was the right, you, you track it with me, right? When I say right, I'm not endorsing this, it was just the culture they're in. I can't change the culture it was in. It's what he should do, just take care of him, just get rid of him, bring peace to the nation. Culturally, that, I mean, at best he should like, all right, you can stay here, but you got to be my servant. You got to find your way to make yourself useful to me. Cripple boy. Figure out a way. Come on, do something. Try harder. Or maybe, maybe, maybe you know, just go sit over here. And when I need to laugh, be funny. Be my court jester. Entertain me. We'll, we'll, just, we'll just pull you out when we have guests over. We need a good laugh. It's probably what Mephibosheth is thinking. Because culturally... That's what should have been done. But on top of that, now he's under a covenant. And understand that a covenant like this that was between the house, yes, required, listen, listen, required David to show kindness to Mephibosheth. It also required Mephibosheth to receive kindness from David. So if Mephibosheth chooses to stay in his fear, his anger, his hatred, and his shame, he will miss out on not only the blessing, but he'll be doubly cursed because the only right thing left to do would be to kill Mephibosheth because he has not fulfilled his covenant. The entire obligation on Mephibosheth under the covenant is to receive kindness. But he's ignorant of this. He has no idea what's going on. He's just thrown before him, so he does what anyone would do. He begs for his life. I'm your, he does the same thing. He does the same thing as he does. I'm totally on your team. I didn't even like my dad. Saul was, Saul was mean. I didn't even like him. He, he was, he, I wasn't too young to vote for him, but I wouldn't have voted for him either way. I, don't, I, I, I was for you. He's scared. 
the real question comes down for, John, for Mephibosheth is this. Whose son are you going to be? Notice in the text, it says he's both Jonathan's son and Saul's son. Will Mephibosheth find his identity in Jonathan or Saul? Are you going to love David? Are you going to receive kindness from him? Or are you going to reject him? Are you going to think like Saul thought that David was stealing something that belonged to you? Are you going to humble yourself and go, you know what, David, it was yours all along. Saul rejects and despises David. He fights him and seeks to kill him. Jonathan loved David. And that love cost Jonathan everything. I, I was pondering this this week. It, costs, it would have cost Saul nothing to love David. Saul, it was clear David was not interested in toppling Saul's kingdom. In, in the midst of, of, of David still being this, this warrior leader of Saul's army, he was still willing, when Saul would be tormented, he was still willing to do a servant's job and come and play his harp to bring peace to Saul. Saul could have loved David as his son, raised him up, cheered him on, died and David would have been king, and Saul never would have been any different. Yet Jonathan... For Jonathan to love David means I got I to gotta step aside. I got to not live as the king. I got to not get to rule around. I got to not do my thing. I have to lay all of that down and let him take that. This is the same question that comes to us. Are we going to be Adam or are we going to be Jesus? For in Adam all died. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. So what does David do? What is, how does David do this? How does David try to help Mephibosheth realize that, he's, that David is not who all those people said he was? How do we not buy into the sin of Adam, believing that God is withholding fulfillment from us, withholding good from us, withholding righteousness from us, withholding something that we need, hiding good, and then in his words saying, don't behave this way, don't do this thing. How do we embrace the message of Jesus that said God is always, God is only good? What does David do? He restores all that was lost by the sin of Saul. Hey, Mephibosheth, you know all the stuff you would have had if Saul never would have thrown those spears at me? It's yours. Here's the deed to all of his land. Here's all of his servants. Here's all of his money. I saved it for him. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to become king to take Saul's stuff. I put it aside for you. It's all right here. Here's all of it. Here's everything you could ever possibly desire or want in the world. You don't have to live in a place of no promise and hopelessness. Here's everything you were ever too scared to hope for. Restore it back to you. And then David makes a place for him at the royal family table. David does the unthinkable by restoring back to him all that was Saul's. But David does the unbelievable by saying, you know what? You know what? You can actually keep eating at the table like a king's son. David shares not only his fortune with him, but David shares his family with Mephibosheth. You're at the table like any other of the sons, the firstborn among many brethren. 
You're at the table. You're, you are made a son. Nobody knows. And notice this, notice this, notice this. Where is he crippled? And what happens when you come up to a table and you sit? His crippledness is covered. No one sees any different. He's just at the table like one of the sons. David shares everything. His family, his fortune. But we messed up. Who is David? What does David mean? David, Dahaved, literally means beloved. The literal definition of David's name means beloved, which means that the beloved for us, come on, restores all that was lost by the sin of Adam. The beloved makes a place for you at the royal family table. I've taught you this before. How do, what, what do we do when we look, we look to the scriptures? We, first thing we need to do is find Jesus. How do you find Jesus in the scriptures? Whoever the hero is in the story, that's Jesus. Whoever the needy, groveling <laughs> one that needs the hero is, that gets to be us. So who are we in this story? We're Mephibosheth. And an encounter with the beloved undoes everything lost by the sin of Adam. But it doesn't just, that's unthinkable. That, 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 that God would be so good to go, you know, you know what, you, you totally screwed everything up. But it's all right, I got it all for you. I bought it all back, here it is again. But the thing I can't believe is that he takes that same one and said, you know what? Better than just that, I'm going to make a place for you within the very family of God. I'm not satisfied with just restoring you back to being able to handle and take care of the earth like you were called to do. I actually want to restore you to something better because the way of God is always that the former would be better than the latter. He brings us back to where we were and then takes us beyond there and includes us. You see, encountering beloved removes all duality. It shatters it. It gets rid of it. Because here's what we need to understand. This encounter changed Mephibosheth. It changed him. It utterly transformed him. Because when we encounter the beloved, when we encounter the goodness, the kindness, the faithfulness of God, and we choose to abandon, come on, the lies that everybody told us about who he is. You realize that even in that moment, Mephibosheth could have gone, no, you're a jerk. You stole everything from me. The only thing I want from you is that throne. So either you step aside or I'm coming at you. And of course, David would be like, okay, buddy. But how often, how often have I looked at the Lord and said, get off the throne and let me on it? My little legs, can't even move them. Couldn't get up there even if he did get off. Even if he moved out of the way, I can't get up there. But this encounter changes Mephibosheth and I think does something significant. Mephibosheth is no longer broken and ashamed. That's duality. The encounter erases the end, and now suddenly he becomes the one who is shattered shame. He shatters the shame that he used to live under. 
Because now he sits at the table. Now he's not the crippled boy. Now he's not the failed son of Jonathan. Now he's a son of David. He sits, you read it in the text, he sits at the table as one of the king's sons. He lived in Jerusalem. Saul's place was not in Jerusalem. That was David's city. So, so Mephibosheth goes, I know I have all of this stuff. I'm not interested in all that stuff. I just want to be with you. I don't want to live anywhere else. I know I got palaces. I know I got cool stuff. I know I've got all this stuff. You gave me all of Saul's stuff. I don't want all of Saul's stuff. Mephibosheth says, David, I just want you. I just want to eat here. I just want to be here. Beloved, David shared his fortune and his family with Mephibosheth. Jesus shares his fortune and his family with you and with me. Through the chesed of Jesus, through the covenant faithfulness of Jesus, he does the unthinkable and the unbelievable and makes us one with him in intimacy and in union. Jesus says in John 17 that they might be in me, that you might be in me, that they might be in... He he talks about this amazing unity that we have. So much so that he says, I'm sharing the glory that I have with them. They're one with us. You're invited. You're not just just included in the heavenly host. You are included as one of the sons of God. Welcomed to the table. Again, I've taught you this before. All the old covenant could do is cover your sin. The new covenant doesn't cover it. It does away with it. So now your legs are not broken. You are not crippled. You are not shattered. You are not broken and ashamed. Your shame has been shattered. It has been done away with. What the enemy meant for evil, God intends for good. Just like Mephibosheth, we are the beneficiaries of a covenant that we did not make. A covenant within the Godhead. But the mystery hidden from the ages is that God became man. So when God, who had become man, makes a covenant with God, we get to by proxy be in that. And we reap all of the benefits We are welcomed into the family. We are welcomed into the experience of divine love. Included not just with the angelic host, but you are invited into the swirl of Trinitarian intimacy. Are you understanding now? Are you beginning to understand now why it was so important to me that we rethink our our explanation of the Trinity? Where the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the... I don't know why I'm Yoda. We want to go down this whole intellectual, and it's important for us to intellectually understand all that so that we don't end up in error. I'm not saying that. But once you've gotten that down, that picture does not make you want to snuggle up to that. But that's what we're called to do. So I've tried to help us understand the Trinity is is what the early church fathers called it, which is the perichoresis of God. Perfect love, loving perfect love, loving perfect love. Loving perfect love, loving perfect love, loving... the, the, The... the intertwining of one without the loss of oneself. That is what you and I are invited into. Not to just, listen, it would be enough to just be invited to be a servant. There would be nothing wrong. It would be kindness for God to go, you know what, just hide over here, and when I want to laugh, come on out, and we'll all laugh at you, and then you can go back and hide. That would be kindness. Hey, figure out a way to be my servant. Make yourself useful. 
That would be kindness. But the unbelievable, unthinkable, unfathomable love of God said, no, 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 I want to include you at the table that only the family gets to sit at. This was not just a table of dignitaries where when he brought in people from other nations, he got to sit at that. No, no, this is like you get to come over for breakfast every morning. You get to see me where no one else gets to see me. You have unlimited access. You, we can just talk about whatever. We, you can just be. There's intimacy. There is union. There is together. It's one table. Just get to be here. Just get to be here. Now the pushback that I'm going to get as we, as we dive into this, as we look at the reality of our union with divinity, of our inclusion into the family of God, the pushback I'm going to get, get from some of you, and it's already coming up with some of you, well, that's just going to lead to pride and ego. And what are you saying? We're supposed to worship ourselves and we're God now? Well, let's look at, let's look at the story. Because guess what? There's, there's something in that. When Mephibosheth shows up at David's house, he's by himself. But by the end of the story, you find that he has a son. His son's name is Micah. Guess what Micah's name means? Who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? What's the, what's the product of a life that knows the goodness of God, has included them into the goodness of God? Who is like the Lord? Who's like God? We don't worship ourselves. Are you kidding me? This is meant to be fuel to worship him. Because he's revealed just how good he is. Not just good enough that, oh, well, I, I got healed. Not just good enough that, oh, well, I got saved. Good enough that he made me one with himself. That he withheld nothing. I gave him every reason. Every reason. To do away with me. To be, he had every legal, logical, right reason to just be done with me. Because I saw his goodness and I went, no. I want the throne. And you want to know the scandalous thing about God? The throne in my own life that only he was rightful to sit on. When I yelled at him with my crippled little feet and said, I want to sit on that throne. Do you know what he did? Okay. And he got up and he stood beside it. He goes, be my guest. And after all my kicking and screaming and fighting, I couldn't even get up. There. I, couldn't, I couldn't even run my own life. We demand that God let us have our own way. You couldn't find your keys this morning. I couldn't do anything. Don't get me wrong, at the time I had all of these perfectly laid out reasons why I deserved to behave the way I did. Looking back, all of them were what Paul would call scubula. Literally, the Greek word Doo-doo, but not doo-doo, the real word, the word that we're not supposed to say in church. <laughs> yes, Paul swore in the Bible. I tried to use that as an argument to my wife, so I should be allowed to swear from the pulpit. She said, fine. Paul did it once in all of his letters. You get one, your whole ministry career. <laughs> I was like, sweet. And she goes, you already slipped and used it once. And I'm like, dang it. <laughs> You're all safe. Come on, the byproduct of a life that understands the, 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 the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God is not that I worship myself. It's that I stand with all of the cosmos and say, who is like the Lord? Which literally, the, the, he gave us a word for it, holy. We stand before him and go, he's just otherly. There's nobody like him. Nobody would do this. 
Nobody would, nobody would share this. And yet he did. And the byproduct of my life is a life of worship. It's a life of adoration. Whatever that might, it might look like making cogs at a factory. It might look like raising kids. It might look like being a teacher. It might look like being a mom. It might look like being a dad. It might look like construction. It might look like math. It might look like flipping burgers. But you know what I do? Everything's to God's glory. All of my life now has meaning because I'm one with him. So it's not just me doing this. God's actually flipping burgers. Come on, let's stand to our feet. We're going to spend some time digging into this because in my opinion, this is one of the most neglected doctrines within the Western church. we're We're all good talking about how we're justified. We're all good talking about how we're sanctified, but, but to be told, no, 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 God wants to make you one with himself. And suddenly Western Christians, their, our toes just curl. So we're going to walk in. I'm, I'm fully aware that this might be uncomfortable for some of you and might take some time to walk through. We're going to take our time to walk through this. But this morning, I just want to encourage us to lift our eyes to the reality of the salvation that we've been given by Yahweh. Come on, to see beyond. Here's really where my heart is. I don't want anyone in this room, anyone within the sound of my voice, to be ignorant of the covenant that you're under. Come on, this changes evangelism, does it not? Suddenly now I'm not trying to convince people to vote for Jesus. I'm going to people and saying, he made a covenant with you when you didn't know it. His goodness is towards you. His favor is towards you. His love is towards you. So if you're here and you don't know the goodness, the kindness of God, if you've forgotten it, come on, along the way, remember, remember, friends. If you've never known it, I want to introduce you to a God who loves you so much that he wants to share all of himself with you. He wants to welcome you. Come on. He, has, he has set a place at his breakfast table for you. Come on, you might invite some people over for dinner, but you ain't inviting anybody over for breakfast. Come on, you gotta, you gotta really know somebody. Have them over to your house for breakfast. Maybe like, brunch, but breakfast? That's what he's made for us. So our choice is simply this. Are we going to abandon our previously held ideas of him? Are you going to let go of fear and shame and anger? Are you going to stop blaming him for your own stupidity? Are we going to stop blaming him for the places we walked ourselves? Come on. Or are we going to are we going to are we going to fall down and receive what he wants to give us? How can Mephibosheth honor David's kindness? Just receive it. I love I love this part of the story. I didn't have time to go there. I, I, I love that 
I love that Mephibosheth calls himself a, a dead dog. You have to understand at the time, dogs were not very well domesticated at all, so they were pests. So when somebody saw a dead dog at that time, it was a good thing. Modern paraphrase would be like a rat. Like he's literally saying, like, I'm just, I'm, just a, I'm just a worthless rat. Why would you pay attention to me? What I love about the story is David just ignores that. He gets that, like, that's how he sees himself right now. But that, just wait, just wait, Mephibosheth. You're not going to see yourself that way soon. Because Ziba's going to take you back to Saul's house, and you're going to realize everything I have for you. And then you're going to be there for a while, and you're going to realize, like, David's got it better, and I can go live with him. And you're going to come back, and you're going to learn to live. Come on. You're going to learn to live as one of the king's sons. What are we doing as a church? We're learning to live. Come on. As sons of God. Not dead dogs, not sinners saved by grace, not snow-covered dung. We're learning to live as sons of God. Because we're hot stuff. I said stuff, that's sanctification. Hot stuff. No, because he is. I didn't make myself this. I wasn't even involved in the covenant that made me this. I'm just barely smart enough to go like, I give up. That's all I'm asking everyone in this room to do. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to justify it. Just be smart enough to go, yeah, I give up. David is the warrior of all warriors in the Old Testament. Mephibosheth is crippled. Mephibosheth ain't winning that fight, and you're not winning the fight with Abba. The question is, will you relent? Will you tap? Let's use biblical words. Will you repent? Literally means to abandon the erroneous, wrong ways of thinking. To admit them and abandon them. And will you believe? Will you put your faith in the message that beloved brings to you? that says, I'm going to restore everything back to you. You go, I don't have anything. I'm going to restore everything back to you. My life looks like I'm going to restore everything back to you. I'm going to make a place for you at my table. Will you embrace that? Will you entrust that as your identity? Will you trust that as your security? Will you trust that as the ecstasy that you're longing for in your life? Stop looking in other places. Stop going. Why are you going back to Lodabar? Why would would Mephishet ever go back? How quickly, beloved, we go back. Hopelessness, despair, feeling shattered, feeling ashamed, feeling broken. No, no, no. That's not who you are anymore. Not denying. I'm listen, listen, I know there, there are people here. You were dropped. Come on. Somebody else's negligence hurt you. I'm not denying that. I'm not trying to take that from you. I'm trying to say that God in his goodness wants to use even that part of your story to show how good he is. That thing that other person did that they never should have done, there's no excuse for it, but it happened. So what are we going to do now? We're going to receive his love and let it cover all of that. And the new covenant doesn't just cover, come on, it undoes it all. I feel, I feel this morning, is it still morning? It's still morning. 
So if you're here and you don't, if you don't know the covenant you're under, we hope you heard it this morning, that you would repent, that you would believe that you could be welcomed into the family. Can I get an amen from anybody who agrees with me? That's our heart for you this morning. But listen, for those who have repented and believed but just thought all it did was get you out of hell, I hope you'll lift your eyes and see the reality of your salvation this morning. I sense the spirit of the Lord here this morning to shatter shame in people's lives. You have isolated yourself from him and from one another. Come on, some of you have, are, are so known by everybody around you and yet you know that nobody knows you because shame and condemnation have crept into your heart and you have isolated yourself. And I wanna tell you, come to the table. You, you can't cover up your brokenness, but he can carry it away. Come on, you can't cover your own brokenness, but he can carry it away. Mephibosheth had to decide, am I gonna be a cripple or am I gonna be a son of David? Because you can't be both. Come on, you can't be both. Not denying that you were a cripple. I'm not denying, listen, I'm not denying that I used to be an addict, but I'm not an addict anymore. I have no worry about relapsing in my life at all. If you knew me 20 years ago, you would not believe that I would ever be able to say that 25 years ago. Somebody who's in recovery just realized how free I am because you're still counting days. I'm talking about a freedom that's really free. I'm talking about a healing that really means healed. I'm talking about Sozo. So this morning, we're gonna respond, but I, I, don't, I, don't, I refuse to let this just be, oh yeah, that's where we respond. Okay, let's just do it. No, no, the spirit of the Lord is here. Come on, if you've got, if you are still wrestling with shame and guilt, I'm gonna ask you to do something that's going to make you even more uncomfortable. I'm gonna ask you to get out of your chair and find a space in this room, whether that's coming up here to the altar, whether that's going and letting somebody pray for you, whether that's hiding in a corner. I, you need to get out of where you are and literally, physically step out of that shame and let the goodness of God meet you in that place. Can you imagine the anxiety that Mephibosheth felt as they carried him into the, into the presence of the king? For all he knew, these were the last breaths he would ever take. And what I'm here to tell you, I know this path myself very well, that as you are afraid and as you are fearful, as you will step out, as you will let go of those things, his presence will meet you in that moment. And it will not meet you with shame. It will meet you with salvation, with restoration, with wholeness. So I don't care how uncomfortable it makes other people in the room, we're gonna make some space here for people to encounter the king. And I'm just gonna be bluntly real with you. If you are dismissed if you wanna leave. If that bothers you, if that makes you uncomfortable, I love you, That's not, I'm not judging you at all. That, if, that, if you can't handle that, I get it. But I'm not gonna rush people who need this just because you're uncomfortable. I love them too much and I love you too much because someday you're gonna need to come forward. And you're gonna need me to stand up here and tell other people to just, man, the sanctification of the Lord's working good. I just edited myself before that came out. Um, let's just say go fly a kite, is what I was gonna say. Um, we're gonna take some time. We're gonna push in. So Holy Spirit, we make room.
as we come to, to, to celebrate, to contemplate, to commune, as we, as we come to the table of your broken body, your shed blood, as we come, as we celebrate baptism this morning, totally forgot we were even doing that. Praise God. It's a good day to do it, amen? Let's bury some shame. Maybe some of y'all need to do that. Come on. As we do all of this, Lord, we don't do it to do it. We do it to meet with you. I confess I have no interest in anything else anymore, Lord. Thanks for all, thanks for all of Adam's stuff back. I don't want it. I just want you. Thanks for, the, thanks for reclamation, but I just want restoration in right relationship with you. Spirit of the living God, we make room for you. We make space, we make a place. We come confessing that we don't need another, another, another religious experience. We need an encounter with you. We don't need another emotional mountaintop. We need to encounter you. We need to let go of all the things that we have gone to to try to say who we are. God, I pray for the one who's here. I pray for the two that are here. I pray for those that are here that say, but if I don't have this, who am I? You're a son of the living God. And that's better. That's better. Spirit of the living God. Where the Spirit of the Lord is. Come on. There is liberty. There is liberty. We speak forth liberty in this house today. We speak forth freedom in this house today. You are not the mistakes you've made. You are not the mistakes made to you. You are a son of the living God. You have unlimited access to him. There is a table set before you, even in the presence of your enemies. You will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Come on, church, come on. Come on, with your own voice, with your own voice, with your own words, begin to lift up your voice. We open this up, let's, let's begin to respond. Come on, church, let's respond to the Lord.